This is my own private domicile and I will not be harassed! Bitch! Gangsters, what's up guys? What's the grant to a motherfucker like me? Can you please remind me? Get the world by the tail! Fat broads and horse-faced lesbians. Cute as shit. Oh, 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 skip, skip, skip. If you don't chew big red, then f you. That's so horny. Could you imagine if I hit the old water pipe with that thing? Oh. Great cash, homie. Three, two, one, let's fuck! Everybody's got to hear the shit on W Balls, W Balls, W Balls. Welcome, 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 welcome back, everybody, to the last, and I repeat the last, original content piece for this year, and if you guys have followed the blog for the last couple of years, actually the last year in particular, since I've been doing the two posts a month thing, I have been, or two posts, two podcasts a month, I have ended my years by doing the following. So I do a, what I call the state of Don't Do This Media Address, which went over very, very well last year. I was really happy with it. I actually just finished the one for this year and writing all that down and my thoughts down in the past couple weeks. That is going to come out in the first week of December. My books for this year, I'm still rounding out that list. I, I read a lot of good books this year, some that were not so great, but some that were very, very great, very informative, terrifying also, but also very, very good. That is coming out in the second week of the year, or the, or the third week of the year, the second original post. But this is the last one where I'm really going to dig into a topic. And I'm really excited to dig into this one because it is a thing that I have thought about for a while and something that I needed just someone else to put in context for me. And thankfully with this kind of post I did, but this is a post that I think is really interesting to look at in a lot of ways because it's really, even though it's about a lot of emotions we show towards other people, it's more about really, I think how we process emotion internally, which is really, really interesting and kind of see how we play with those two things together and see how they interact with one another and everything else. And I've been really kind of digging in. I, I, I powered through this post. I wrote it in two days. And it's a, it's a decently long one. I don't know if it'll be as long as usual ones, but it's a, it's a pretty long post and I've dug into it for a while. I've thought about it for a while. And I think that it's a very, very interesting thing that's kind of going on in our culture recently where we have this being in a lot of ways are a lot of, you know, it, it impacts a lot of things about ourselves. It impacts a lot of things about how we see very, very different things in our life, which is very, very interesting. So I cannot wait to dig into it. And without further ado, the last OG piece of this original content piece of this year, fucking up all over the place today, I'm sorry. Here it is. There can be much said for the last few years we've endured in America. You could point to the political tensions that have arisen in the seemingly insane people to try to rip further at their seams. You could point to the bifurcating economy and see as clear as day that it's moving away from providing quality goods and services and more about providing novel distractions. You could point to the disappearance of social institutions and see that more people seem untethered from the things that actually matter than ever before. You could point to a lot of bad things. There are certainly plenty of those. However, what you could not point to is that America has gotten meaner. Sure, there are the people in our ruling class that say everyone that disagrees with them is some kind of extremist zealot or something. 
But if you look to the, your left and to your right, not the left and the right, but to your left and to your right at your neighbors, the people that actually mean something to you, you would most likely see that these are, in fact, very nice people. Not much else matters other than people being nice. All the trivial factors that people seem to freak out over seem to melt away quite quickly. Kindness is a virtue, that's for certain. A country made up of very nice people and a mindset that enables you to participate in those are very good and constructive things to make up a society. The more nice a society is, you see, the better it is to live in. The nicer you are to your neighbors, the more charitable you are to the rest of the world. The more you'll reap benefits from it and the more society will flourish, goes the common argument. But, we should all ask, is this actually true? And in abstraction, to be fair, I would argue that it is. However, kindness, like all other emotions we should we obsess over it too much, can become corrupted should it fall into the hands of bad actors who, willingly or unwillingly, use it for malicious reasons. Emotionally driven conclusions, whether they're driven from the positive or negative side of the equation, rarely ever amount to anything of value that can be used constructively into the future. And our friend Zuby knows this. Zuby, if you don't remember, is a famous podcaster, rapper, and thought leader from the UK, and has been rightly recognized as one of the most common-sense people that have perpetuated our discourse. Even though he's not an American, he has a very keen sense and understanding about the way that our culture, the one that trickles down onto the rest of the world, works. He's seen a lot of things that he's viewed as concerning and voices them regularly for anyone wise enough to listen. And recently, Zuby dropped down to Fort Lauderdale to join Patrick Bet David and Adam Sosnick on their great PBD podcast. The podcast, usually structured for around two hours, splits the time roughly in half between talking to the guest about then going to some details in the news that's going around in the world. When you have a guest on who is both intelligent and interesting, like Zuby, you can usually reap some pretty valuable information should you just take it in, in the first place. One of the headlines that was discussed was the recent innovation the state of California made to their drug addiction and homeless problems. Since they usually converge together, and unfortunately they do so often, the state decided to tackle the problem together. However, the way in which they chose to, and are still, do it was something unfathomable, Absolutely unfathomable. And the way California's attempted to combat the state's heroin and opiate problems by opening up, quote, treatment centers, where, addic or where addicts can, quote, safely shoot up heroin to prevent them from getting it on the street, where it has a much greater probability of it being laced with something like black tar or fentanyl. In these treatment centers, these addicts can safely break the law and abuse illegal narcotics while getting their fix for their addiction. And this is, obviously, on its face, an absolutely insane thing to do. Giving drug addicts who are mentally ill, which is what addiction is, taxpayer-funded ability to abuse that substance even further is just bonkers. It's not solving the problem, it's enabling it. By attempting to, quote, safely foster the addictive cycle of these poor folks to continue, the state of California is perpetuating the problem indefinitely by allowing them to keep using. However, on the other hand, you see, in some twisted sense, why California is doing this. Drug addicts, particularly ones that are afflicted so bad they lose their home and most likely their sanity, are very sad people in sad situations. The pain they feel when they don't get whatever substance they're addicted to pushed into their bodies is excruciating. The desire to feel that they have to get drugs is even more powerful. They assault people, commit robbery, and usually other felonies to get their bodies un under tight control. Excuse me. And in this sense, giving them access to drugs so they don't have to feel that pain makes some degree of sense. It was this dichotomy that Zuby chose to hit on when the issue surfaced in the PBD podcast. Zuby, obviously pointing out that this idea was totally nuts, and drawing on his knowledge of how Americans think, saw immediately what the method behind the madness was. Even though some of the others were highly confused about it, Zuby was able to distill the problem down perfectly by boiling it down to a perfectly phrased affliction. Toxic compassion. Zuby, and most of the rest of us, know that it's an absolutely absurd thing to even consider. 
But they also knew that terrible things that addiction do to a person's mind, body, and soul. And however, the key point that Zuby hit on, his answer of toxic compassion, is a very important subject to bring into the light in modern America. Contrary to what the culture reinforces, there is such a thing as too much compassion. Even though having, having compassion for people when they're going through a difficult time is a very admirable thing to do, there must be a point where the compassion stops and people begin to take responsibility for whatever situation they're faced with that caused that compassion to be felt by the opposition, opposite person in the first place. Now, I've ranted about mindless positivity many times before, so you may be asking, what's the point of toxic compassion? Why introduce another of your bizarre concepts or rules into the mix and there already is one that does the trick? And my response to that would be that I don't believe that mindless positivity and toxic compassion are the same thing. And here's why. Mindless positivity, as we've discussed more times than I can remember, is all about yourself. It's a reflection of emboldened narcissism that you have used to cloak all of your problems in the world, no matter if they're good or bad. It is refusing to look at whatever it is that bothers you in your life and hoping that it just goes away. In other words, it's just another form of avoidance that is used by people to shove their problems under a rug so they can adopt the false belief that they will not have to deal with them if they just simply ignore them. Toxic compassion, however, is different. Toxic compassion, as we clarified earlier, is all about other people. And this, in a way, makes it both better and worse than mindless positivity. It makes it better because you are not lying to yourself about what is going on in your world. You're not being shrouded in willful ignorance and attempting that your problems do actually do not actually exist. It is worse, however, because you are doing a tremendous amount of harm to those other people if you let them go about their vices, if you help them enable them to shroud their problems in ignorance. Additionally, toxic compassion is often a reflection of your own narcissism that spills out into other domains. If you find a person who embodies mindless positivity, odds are that, that person will also embody toxic compassion. It's a complete revocation of responsibility on all fronts to all people. If it's no one's fault, you see, then we can all just go about our lives and not have to worry about a thing. But someone always has to take responsibility, because ownership is everything. If no one is responsible, if no one is held to account, then anything goes. People can corrupt institutions and systems and use them as weapons towards other people that they disagree with or don't like. Problems will not get fixed. Other people will suffer. A population that, as a whole, takes on this identity will be a population that is akin to a person blissfully walking over a cliff not knowing that it's even there in the first place. A truly compassionate person does not do this. A compassionate person feels empathy for that person initially because that person is probably going through a decently hard time and could use support. I am in no way arguing against that. As said, it's a very admirable thing when people can shed their lens of judgment to go about the good work of truly helping other people. But there's a line that must be drawn also. We cannot excuse every possible behavior because there is such a bad thing as bad behavior. It's remarkable how quickly our society has forgotten that fact. We've become so non-judgmental that we refuse to judge anyone for anything now, even though it could very well end up being a bad thing. And it is that innate of the, genuineness excuse me, of the human spirit, particularly of the younger generations, that allows this extension of grace to people. And this is a good impulse. I'm of the opinion that we should start our dialogue with people, even if they are doing bad things, to come at it from a very difficult angle of understanding. However, this often fails and fails dramatically because of excess. When our culture of excess begins to infiltrate our compassion, it corrupts it until it becomes toxic compassion. When we're not allowed to be honest, when we do not tell, get to tell people the truth about things, we open the door for much worse things to incur in place of the truth. Toxic compassion is one of the causes that is enabling much of the bad behavior and the attitudes towards it that we are seeing at the current moment. To dissect it, 
We first have to begin with how toxic compassion manifests itself in culture. Second, we must understand how it gets people to fall into the trap of toxic compassion in the first place. And lastly, we must put our practices into place to see what can be done in its place so that we can use our true compassion to the benefit of us and for those we care about. So bear with me, put down the probably used needle, and let's begin. Toxic compassion, as mentioned, is an outgrowth of mindless positivity. It's taking the internal ignorance you have towards your own issues and problems and deliberately forcing themselves onto other people externally. You do this because you wish for those people to feel the same thing you do. Blind, blind, blindfully gleeful from facing the responsibilities and consequences of their actions. Can't talk tonight, apparently. You do not care and wish them not to care about the problems that both you and they are facing. You only care about wanting them to go away where you have the luxury of not looking at them. Therefore, toxic compassion is not just an outgrowth of mindless positivity. It is an externalization of mindless positivity. It is taking your internal ignorance and fostering a mentality onto others in an act of pure and unbridled avoidance towards the things that must be done. It does not matter that what you're doing isn't right. What matters instead is believing and feeling that you are. Reality plays no part in the equation whatsoever. Mindless positivity, remember, is cloaking yourself in ignorance and cutting yourself off from improvement in an act of flawed self-compassion. In fact, I go as far as to say it's anti-improvement in any sense of the word. You cannot improve when you are stagnant. You cannot get better when you refuse to fix what you need to fix. It doesn't matter how you feel if what you actually do is in the complete inverse of those things. Toxic compassion is that same phenomenon done to other people. It is placing them on the weak side of the toughness gap by telling them that they should not take the sovereignty needed to, to control their own problems and write their own narratives. Instead, it's simply saying that you do not need to fix your problems. You can choose to live in spite of them. Detriment to both yourself and others be damned. You have the best life to live, you see. So how does this happen? One of the main vectors, and probably the main vector, that, and the most common one that a lot of people see, is rampant excuse-making. People, whether it's your mother, your lover, your brother, love to make excuses for two groups of people, those they love and those they wish to protect. They can be done with both good and intentions and bad, and oftentimes can and do converge with one another. People, particularly those who actually love and care about you, do not want to see you injured nor sad about things that can upset you. They want to affirm you so that your self-esteem can stay intact and that you feel good about where you are in life. This is done out of love and compassion. They are things that people that love other people do. You do not want to tear down the people that you care for if you don't have to. But there are also those who chose to do this for selfish and malicious reasons. There are people that extend false virtue and compassion to people that do not necessarily deserve it. Rather, they are extended that false virtue to simply make the other people feel a certain type of way about them. It is not done to help that person or group at all. Instead, the person who displays toxic compassion does so to force the hand of the person or group that may or may not know any better to treat them with deference that might not be deserved at all. The two most guilty parties, the two easiest groups to point out, are politicians and families. They want to protect their sacred cows, their base, and their other family members. They extend false virtue, toxic compassion, to all of them in order to gain loyalty from that fraudulent sentiment. This is easier to excuse the families who might have legitimate problems. But the most disturbing case by far is within our public discourse. Politicians, particularly when under the veil of social justice, have exploited all of this very recently to kowtow to groups that most of them couldn't give a shit about in any other context. They do not care about these people. 
They only care about what those people can do for them and their power in the longer term. But contrary to what they think and congruent to what the toughness gap explains, this tactic only opens up those people to further suffering. When you give people an easy out for things that can be fixed, when you remove all of their sovereignty from their decision-making and ability to press forward to confront their challenges and demons, it does nothing to those people but exposes them to injury due to their ignorance being further emboldened. This is not an act of kindness to do this to someone. Rather, it is an act of control. You're taking someone's personal narrative and tying it up completely with what you wish their life to be like. It is a very sinister thing when you really analyze it. You should not wish for people to stay where they are if they're damaging themselves and the people around them. You should want them to be better for those groups, because becoming better in that specific domain of life is the only true cure that can last over time. When people cannot be held to an honest account over their actions, there leaves a vacuum where other things can and undoubtedly will take their places. Accountability is so important, at least in theory, to so many people because accountability is the only reliable source that most human beings have of keeping a record of intangible traits that people bring to the table. When you say that you're a hard worker, for example, but turn out not to be, accountability is the one thing that keeps track of it. When you say that you're a good leader, but turn out not to be, accountability is the thing that sounds the alarm. When you say that you are something and you don't turn out to be that something, accountability is the flashing siren inside everyone's head that tells them rightly to beware. The greatest threat, however, to the lack of accountability that comes from toxic compassion is that not only are the people who are actually at fault from holding the bag, there is no one that is holding the bag at all. Someone, particularly if the issue is a dire one, must take adequate responsibility to fix the problem and make it better. If they cannot, things can go to hell in a handbasket and will definitely do so if the issue is malevolent and messy enough. People might push back on this and say that it's not that big of a deal. So what if some small issues are left unattended to? It's not like they're going to wreck our lives or whatever. I would, however, caution anyone about adopting this mentality. Small things, no matter how small they are in reality, always have the potential to grow. Remember, the most powerful thing in existence is an idea, and all of those initially start small. Additionally, if you shun responsibility for taking care of that so-called, quote, small thing, who is to say that you can reliably step up and take it for the, quote, big things, the ones that reportedly matter so much to you? If I were a betting man, and I'm not, I was in Vegas a couple weeks ago and can attest to that, I would put a large deposit on the odds that you are not and could not. Responsibility in anything of value does not and has never worked that way. This is because that responsibility and other things that compound positively if attended to correctly take more effort to sustain, not less. The other component of this equation that people might miss is honesty, which is much of a necessary component to fight toxic compassion as responsibility is. All problems in society will be successfully perpetuated throughout society if people are dishonest about them. When no one can tell anyone about their problems and how they're being used to harm others in the fashion they can understand, they will be left unattended to and left to manifest further in reality. Dishonesty, therefore, is the gateway drug to toxic compassion. After a dishonest claim about a person is made, usually through an excuse that may or not be legitimate at all, a lack of accountability naturally follows behind it to escort it to the finish line. The truth is the most valuable gift that you can give someone, not an excuse. Excuses are cheap, hollow, and shallow. They're the store-bought cake that has way too much frosting at the top. It tastes good for about two seconds, and then everyone knows deep inside, whether they admit it or not, that what they're digesting is absolute dog shit. It's much better to know that you're digesting dog shit before you actually, you know, digest dog shit. Then, in reciprocal, the recipients of toxic compassion will then do the same for others for two reasons. First, they will do so out of that innate human trait to feel for other people. 
However, they will do so in equally in, as inappropriate fashion as they were felt towards using toxic compassion. They'll begin to feel bad for others and then ruin it by making excuses on their behalf and treating them to an endless stream of self-pity that does nothing but enhance their own uselessness. They'll make their minds and souls beholden to a series of lies. Second, they will embody toxic compassion because they feel bad about themselves. I do not believe for one second that people are okay with lying to themselves. People have a remarkable sense of consciousness, the voices that go back and forth like a ping pong ball inside of your head. You know what they're talking to about the angel on one shoulder just as much as they know when they're talking to the devil on the other. Because they feel bad about themselves and the lies that they are internalizing, they compound their toxic and compassionate traits to others by extending false virtue. They try to make others feel better by not actually making others feel better. Instead, they try to create a sense of incredulous and nonsensical victimhood that encapsulates everyone in their lives so that they can have community to go to when their conscience inevitably tells them that what they're doing is wrong. And this phenomenon, this feedback loop of hell, is absolutely crushing to the spirits and souls of human beings. We are meant to embody liberty and our natural rights as men and women. When we embody toxic compassion, we inherently remove those rights from our hands and place them into the hands of an even more helpless wielder, those who tell us the lies of toxic compassion. But if this is inherently and unequivocally bad for us, why do we still fall for it? And like many things in relation to toxic compassion, the answer is both very simple and very complicated, all at the same time. Superbad is the funniest movie I think I've ever seen in my life. I can honestly say that it never gets old. I laugh my ass off every time and watch it even when I watch even one or two scenes of it. It's one of the last truly great comedy films that Hollywood produced since it became incentivized to not produce funny movies anymore. It's a sad thing to see now, but a wonderful thing to look back on. It's like a good memory. It's very happy and very disheartening all at the same time. What you had was so precious, but the fact that you can't experience again breaks you up. I think the reason why I and so many other people love Superbad so much is that it remarkably, it's a remarkably simple concept for a movie. It's two high school nerds who try to buy beer and get laid at a party before they go off to college. It's like if John Hughes and Harold Ramis had a baby and it didn't turn out to be totally horrifying. It's so wholesome, but so not at the same time. It's absolutely joyous to watch, and getting to relive it time and time again is unbelievably fun. One half of the nerdy duo that takes center stage in the film is Evan, based on Evan Goldberg, the legendary producer and writer who made his debut along Seth Rogen with the film and is played by Michael Sarah in the film. Another remarkable thing about Superbad is the amount of people that introduced to the mainstream, not including Goldberg and Rogan. Bill Hader, Emma Stone, and Jonah Hill, not to mention the great and powerful McLovin, whose name, for God forbid, I can't say, all came of age as mainstream and marketable stars, and this film hit the screens in 2007. But it is Sarah's character that has truly stood the test of time. Evan from Superbad is, in my opinion, one of the most consequential and important characters that film has introduced to the world in my lifetime. And that might seem like a strange proclamation coming from a stupid comedy movie. And in a lot of ways, to that point, it is. But there is one thing that a lot of people overlook about the character of Evan in this film that, if extrapolated to the broader culture, they can see its foothold almost everywhere they look. The introduction of the beta male. The one remarkably unheralded accomplishment of Superbad, other than it being a great comedy film, is that it was able to successfully market to the world a lead character that was incredibly unimpressive. Evan from Superbad is a loser, even compared to his friend Seth. He's meek, unassuming, and narcissistic. He doesn't have anything of value to provide insight of the film. 
He's mostly just along for the ride, constantly banking on the slight possibility they go lucky and hits it big, and I mean that in quite the literal sense. Upon the film's success, Evan from Superbad became the genesis of and the poster boy for the nice guy persona across the world. It showed men that there was another way to get a girl and become a success other than the way that they were traditionally taught. It also opened women up to the idea that they could look outside of traditionally masculine traits to find a man who embodied something different in the area of so-called toxic masculinity, which doesn't exist. The effect was so revolutionary that Andrew Schultz somehow got Jordan Peterson to go on a rant and a very accurate one at that about it during his podcast. But if this concept was really that groundbreaking, innovative, and new, then why and how did so many people fall for it? And the answer, when you break it down, is simple. People felt bad for him. People felt bad for Evan from Superbad because he is someone that people should feel bad for. He was sweet and innocent and, because of that, got walked all over by everyone in the film. He was also hilariously ridiculous on top of it, a caricature of beta masculinity that people couldn't help but to laugh at. And for this reason, people became attached to him in beta male culture because they felt a sense of, quote, compassion for his character and the hijinks that he got himself into throughout the film. Evan from Superbad and others like him contain the key. People fall for toxic compassion because it feels good to empathize with others. Back to our, quote, natural-born instincts point, feeling sympathy for people is a very, very good trait to have. It shows that you're a good person, or at least not a psychopath at the minimum. But in actuality, this is not emphasizing empathizing with people at all. In most cases with Evan and other cases of toxic compassion, the people, quote, empathizing with them are actually not doing so. Rather, they were extending toxic compassion onto Evan in those other cases out of narcissism. They did not do so to help the other people because toxic compassion does not help other people. Toxic compassion is only done to help yourself, to see what you can get out of it rather than the other person. It is not any good feeling that you're shoving down their throats. It is making them feel good for the wrong reasons, which is equally as worth of a dilemma. Simply being nice to people isn't enough. There must be actual substance behind their actions. Any fluff that infiltrates your actions automatically begins to corrupt it if they don't serve the purpose of what you're supposedly trying to convey. People who embody toxic compassion towards others only do so to appease their own sense of sanctification. It is a closeted form of virtue signaling. The act of peacocking in front of others is something that you don't have in hopes to gaslight in front of them, to, thinking that they do have it, that you, do, that you have it, excuse me. You do not do this for the regard of the person or the group. You do it to give others the false impression that you do care for that person or group. It serves whatever is the target of your toxic compassion no good at all. The hope is that, instead, it will serve you well in doing this, not them. As mentioned, toxic compassion is an outgrowth of mindless positivity because it is an outgrowth of the narcissism that is contained inside of it. Mindless positivity is narcissistic because you cloak all of your problems, a lot of which could very well be hurting others, in ignorance. Toxic compassion is narcissistic because you avoid telling people the truth and giving them the amount accountability to make yourselves feel better for that reason. All of these actions are inherently selfish. They do nothing to help others, no matter how much those who embody this ideology try to convince them that they are doing the opposite. The people on the receiving end of toxic compassion fall for it for one simple reason. They do not want to take responsibility for their actions and lives. This may sound harsh, and in some ways it is. But when you boil it down, this is always what an avoidance and ignorance of problems is. No matter how you slice it, a lack of responsibility is always the most likely culprit when working these problems out. These people, who want an easy way out, constantly look for ways to duck their issues. 
But unfortunately for them, and fortunately for the rest of us, they realize over time that this is an incredibly hard thing to accomplish. As I'm going to mention in my state address in the coming weeks, as I mentioned earlier, this is a trend that I've seen coming up for a long time. The skepticism that is becoming inherent in a lot of people, particularly those of younger ages, towards almost anything and everything that seems questionable. But people are also smart, particularly those who want to do what they can avoid responsibility for. These people have found a clever way to not only shirk any semblance of responsibility, but to do so in a way that society currently empowers and incentivizes it. This way, the way that so many people who are recipients of toxic compassion are going, is the only way in modern America as it's currently constructed to gain everything while simultaneously doing nothing to gain it. Declaring yourself a victim. Being a victim in today's America is the best way to get anything accomplished. Want to get into college and your academic scores don't pro reflect proper adequacy? Declare yourself victimized. Want to fuck girls and you don't want to put any effort into make yourself fuckable? Declare yourself a victim. Want to get love from your parents while you've done nothing but disrespect them year in and year out after breaking their backs for you? Declare yourself a victim. The people who enable victimhood often don't do it consciously. Victimhood by design is a very tricky thing to decipher. It's a Trojan horse, an element of emotional manipulation that disguises itself as one thing while not so secretly being another. It's the perfect solution if you want all the rewards with, of feeling with none of the prior investment of work that can gain those feelings from others. The key to understanding victimhood is this. If someone affirms your identity as a victim, which is exactly what toxic compassion does in spa spades, excuse me, then you have no reason to challenge the narrative. You're oppressed. You're helpless. You're just a pawn in the game of some large and evil machine that only wants to use you for their diabolical benefit. Jeez, benefit, excuse me. Oh boy, technical difficulties in behalf of middle of this podcast, whatever. If you take on this identity, no one in theory has any right to call you on it. When you're affirming your identity by others, particularly when you have to put no effort into being whatever people say that you are, you get very comfortable coasting on your laurels to keep up what you have going for you as long as you can. There are many people out there, too many, that will try to tear you down for living true to who you think you are. When you finally have an identity that is accepted, even though it's totally undesirable for the outcome of your life, you never want to leave it if you don't have to. The power that you grant those who embody toxic compassion increases exponentially. The reality is that, no matter if he deserved it or if it is deserved or not, people love and want to feel good about themselves. Actions, sadly, tend to go by the wayside. The brain is way more powerful than your actions should be pointed in that, should it be pointed in that direction. Our feeling-based brains will always find a way to trample logic if they're incentivized to do so. That's what gives it dopamine and a reason to send it coursing through your veins. The end point doesn't matter. Only doing what it's wired to do matters. People who are usually engaged in toxic compassion, however, do not have the same sentiment blessed onto, other, onto themselves. They're trying to juggle both at the same time and know that they're doing so. They're not all the way in on those feelings, on either feelings or logic. Their consciences are conflicted and they don't know where to turn. Additionally, without their identities being both affirmed and confirmed in their own heads, they don't have the luxury of settling into just one for sure thing that will satisfy their hunger. They need to make a choice, but are paralyzed because they know their identities themselves are totally unset and off balance. The thing that we will all have to realize with toxic compassion is that it is, by its very nature, hypocritical. The reasoning behind it is the, people spread, is the people that spread it the most. The people that spread it, the people that lie to themselves and to other people, know that what they're doing is not helping anything. They have succumbed to their own selfishness by throwing their conscience to the side and acting like it doesn't matter when it clearly does matter. 
to fight it. They've simply self-appropriated whatever they wish they had, their respect and self-esteem, onto other people. The death spiral of hell cannot be complete without something to spiral into, which in this case means totally compassionate people spreading their own ideology onto others who will continue their affirmations both onto themselves and to others. As we've seen, however, this is a very unreliable and, by definition, toxic mindset to embody. To rid the world of what we know to be going wrong, we instead must pivot our collective focus to one that could be, and is, more constructive. You can't have a conversation about the most inspirational and important people on social media without mentioning the great Cameron Haynes. Cameron Haynes, by his own admission, isn't someone that's remarkable. He's a guy from humble beginnings as a bullied child of divorced parents in a small town in rural Oregon. And as a reminder, this is important that we're talking about here. There are no pink-haired androgynous beings yelling at empty plinths about multicultural existentialism. There are folks from rural areas who, those, work in, those who work in logging mills, for example, actually know their neighbors and hunt for their food. It is the last point that Cameron Haynes would like the world to pay attention to more than any other. The one thing that Cameron Haynes found joy in at a young age, the one thing that made him truly feel like a somebody, was hunting. And not just any type of hunting, like the stereotypes you see of people shooting a shotgun out of the back of a used F-150. Cameron Haynes uses a bow and arrow to hunt, and the weapon that has been used to rev and revolutionized by countless numbers of civilizations to both defend against enemies and hunt for food and sport. Bow hunting, unlike hunting with a rifle, is exceptionally difficult. There is no instant gratification. It's more of an art than a sport. There is so much that goes into it. It's physically taxing and mentally draining, to put it mildly. I've never hunted before, but trust me, there's plenty of difference between a guy who hunts with someone that something that Genghis Khan used to impregnate most of Asia versus a weekend warrior with a dad bod and a bit too much of a hankering for two-plus cans of Coors Banquet for his breakfast before he goes out to hunt. Since this revelation, Cameron Haynes has focused his whole life with one goal in mind becoming the ultimate predator. And what does that look like? Working out three times a day, sometimes with David Goggins, which usually involves the running an entire marathon, shooting bows in his property, and a grueling lift session. He doesn't take days off. He doesn't believe in, quote, getting more sleep. He only knows that to achieve an unachievable goal, you have to work like you can achieve it. If there's any man who understands the true cost of greatness, it would be Cameron Haynes. Earlier this year, Haynes published his memoir, Endure, which quickly became a monster on the charts and the most listened to audiobook in America, even when people who didn't like him were actively censoring it. The word endure is the perfect word to describe Hammer Haynes and all the other people who are truly great at what they do. And the reasoning for this comes in an Instagram post that Haynes recently shared to his Instagram story, which puts it as this, quote, Take the amount of work you think it will take. Multiply that by 10 and then realize it was actually 10 times that and still probably not enough. Being the best in your field is less about skill and more about being able to suffer way more than anyone else, end quote. And this is what makes Cameron Haynes so special. Cameron Haynes is not great because Cameron Haynes is inherently great. Cameron Haynes is great because of how much pain he is willing to endure and how little excuses he is willing to give himself for going through it. And there is very little of this going on in the world today. Social media has made a habit out of glamorizing suffering. And this is wrong because suffering should not be glamorized. Rather, we will be all well off to prove that suffering is something that everyone else will experience. Suffering is life. Life is suffering. It is those who are most able to endure suffering the most that will be able to gain the most out of life. 
This is the nail in the coffin of toxic compassion. Getting rid of victimhood by making it incoherent and obsolete to most people is what will eventually cause its already weak argument to totally fall out from underneath it. If people refuse to look at victimhood as an honorable thing and look at it as the dishonorable thing that it actually is, there will be a lot more people out there that are doing what actually must be done instead to make both their problems go away and stop making excuses for other people's problems. Making yourself better. The antidote to the combination of toxic compassion and victim culture is finding a way to make yourself better in your life. It is by purging all weakness that you can purge your body and callous your mind to becoming harder, stronger, and more resilient. Only through self-improvement and reflection can you truly begin to see that all of your problems, whether your fault or not, are always your responsibility to fix, and fix correctly. The first thing that we would all do well to learn is that empathy can be used for both good and bad reasons. There is such a thing as giving too much empathy to someone in the form of toxic compassion. There must be agency for that person to hold on to, or that person will no longer be free to fix themselves. On the flip side, however, we must also remember that empathy, when used properly, is a good thing. It is very human to feel for other people and try to make them feel better. But it is that kindness that, when taken advantage of, leads to its corresponding weakness being perpetuated into victimhood culture. Empathy is not simply feeling bad for the other person. Rather, it is putting yourself in their situation. It is the old saying of walking a mile in someone else's shoes. When you do this, when you place yourself into the soul of another person, you can get a sense of knowing what is best for them. You'll find it much harder to lie to yourself if you're in another person's shoes who doesn't want to be condescended towards. It doesn't feel good, and both you and them know it to be true. When you are in someone else's shoes through the practice of empathy, you can truly begin to learn by being in their situation of what would be the best for them out of that situation. As the Jordan Peterson rule goes, treat yourself and other people as someone you are responsible for helping. You are doing no one any favors by telling them to disregard and ignore what is making them worse. At your core, you know that, if you were in their situation, you would not want to be pitied. Instead, you would want to become better than what you are. No one with agency wants to be placed on the weak side of the toughness gap and pushed into conformity via, to via toxic compassion. If you want to respect yourself, you must first know how to help yourself. Instead of pushing others to wallow in their own self-imposed sorrow and victimhood, we should push them hard to ask questions about themselves, and hard questions about themselves at that, and do the hard actions resulting from those questions to force them to level up in life. So many people get this wrong, thinking that the world has to uniquely cater everything to them. This is narcissism, the definition of mindless positivity and its extension toxic compassion. You would do yourself and those you care about a lot of good by getting rid of it as fast and fervently as possible. Additionally, you would do well to remove victimhood from your vocabulary and sense of self altogether, because victimhood is a cancer. It spreads incredibly quickly and dominates your entire life. And once you have it, it will most likely be keep coming back over and over again, even if you don't intend on it being the case. There is very little to gain from victimizing yourself with the exception, and I would tread very lightly with this also, of people extending their sympathies on you to appease your feelings, something that, as we know now, is most likely only doing be done to ensure that they feel good about themselves. Instead of victimizing yourself, instead look at what can be done from empowering yourself. What does empowering yourself look like? Well, taking complete and total responsibility for your life, that's what. Empowerment is an internalization of your agency, not an externalization of it. The more control you have over the things that are actually in your control, the more that you can begin to assert your will over your life. The opposite game hardly ever fails. Instead of affirming the opposite of what empowers you, instead tell yourself that by empowering yourself, your life will become dramatically better. 
If you tell yourself that you're not a victim, you will slowly begin to perceive yourself that way. More importantly, if you act like you're not a victim, you will not act like one. Your life will slowly begin to shape because of your actions, thoughts, and words. It's a much, much better overall story to tell yourself that you were a person who overcame challenge and struggle than to constantly wallow in the midst of your own self-imposed suffering. The world is hard enough to survive in and as it is. Don't make it harder for yourself by trying to make yourself worse and not trying to fix what is broken. When you tell yourself that you're oppressed, your body and mind have a remarkable way of affirming that conclusion in your head. Don't make it easy for yourself to become miserable, because you will certainly succeed in doing so. Lastly, learn to value being good over feeling good. Feeling good is just that, a feeling. It comes and goes just like all emotion. You cannot and should not rely on it for the source of your self-esteem and self-value. That must be drawn from something that has more value than just a simple high spot or low spot of gratification that will come with either that can either come and give a take away from you at any moment of their choosing. It must be something internal, something that only you can dictate. That one thing is you being a good person who does do things do does good things. When you're good at your core, you know that you have lasting value within yourself that can transcend feelings. Your sense of self-value, which is far more important than your sense of self-esteem is what you can weather emotions and make yourself into a person that you can help. If you succumb to being at the whims of your self-esteem, you will feel that you cannot improve yourself when you don't feel like doing so. Self-value, on the other hand, doesn't give a shit about how you feel. It's all about looking at yourself as someone who is truly worth making into a better person, which is what truly matters. Treat yourself how you want to treat others is to treat yourself in a situation where you want to be respected and admired. In other words, be the person you aim to be, not the person who you are now. The person you are now is most likely much more unintelligent, shallow, and narcissistic as the person anyone with any sense would desire to be in the future. The only thing stopping you from getting there is you and the stories that you tell yourselves about what you go through. If you tell yourself the right stories, you can instantly begin to make your life into what you want. That is true compassion, and the one we should all strive to embody. Compassion is an admirable and uniquely human trait to possess. However, its beauty is not immune from corruption. When combined with the narcissism innate to mindless positivity and the false sense of virtue we feel when we enable others those same lies, our culture becomes devo one devoid of both honesty and responsibility. Honesty and responsibility, being the two bedrocks of any healthy relationship in society, are the keys to both helping those who need to be helped and, more importantly, helping ourselves. Our problems, when looked at in this way, are merely a combination of execution and persistence. Or, you know, drugs. But drugs, as the unnamed Charlie Sheen character said in Ferris Bueller's Day Off, can lead to bad consequences as well. And I leave it to you to be the judge. And that's a wrap, folks. At least for the really, really original pieces of content. That is a wrap for the original pieces of content for this year. We still have two more pieces coming out later, although they're going to follow the same format as things last year. But... Until that point, guys, thanks for listening. I really, really appreciate it. As always, Value Economics Out Now, all that good stuff. We have a very, very special, at least I'm hoping at this point, very, very special conversation series that we're going to be having next week. I'm super, super excited about it. I've wanted to do it for a very, very long time, and I think I'm finally going to get to do so this week, or the next week, I should say, and I'm super stoked about it. So hope you guys can tune in. hope it happens, first of all. hope you guys can tune in. And again, thanks, to everyone, for listening so much. Own the day. Open your mind. Thanks for listening, everybody. Talk to you guys next week. Stop.
stopping, hopping like a rabbit. When I take the Nina Ross, you know I got to have it. I lay back in the cut, retain myself. Think about the shit and I think it well. How can I mix my grip? And how should I make that nigga straight? <laughs>